Welcome back to To Hell and Back. This is Charlie. And uh, I don't know when you'll be listening to this, but just a few days ago, 19 little children were massacred in a school in Texas in a small town. Two teachers were also murdered. The shooter had also tried to kill his grandmother beforehand, and then the shooter was killed. It's just a national catastrophe. And that's on my mind no matter what else I talk about today, and it's influencing everything I think about, whether I think about it or not. And I'll be returning to it more at the end of this. I'm sort of, I can see it coming more at the end of this podcast. Because there's a number of things I want to talk with you about today. One is the hat that I'm wearing, right? This beautiful silver hat. Second is going to be about um, a certain moment in the development of DBT as a treatment that I think really has a lot of lessons in it for all of us, way beyond DBT. Uh, third, some comments about being a therapist and being a good friend. And fourth, I'll be getting around more explicitly to talking about the massacre. Uh, so first, my hat. My hat, beautiful hat. You saw it last week if you saw my last podcast. Um, and so the question I asked last week was, I don't know why I chose to uh, chose this hat in this project where you were supposed to choose an object, but I chose this hat. And in fact, the point of the project included to just choose something that feels right to you, but you don't really necessarily have to know exactly why. And that's exactly what happened to me. I just sat here and looked at what must have been 2,000 objects on the floor of a room at Smith College in our town here, where this student had an art project, and you were supposed to take something, and I took this. And then I wear it now and then, but hardly ever, but I decided to wear it in the podcast. And then I have to ask myself, why? Uh, this is not a podcast hat. This is not a to hell and back hat. Even though my son, my assistant, my marketing director, Ruben, thinks that maybe I should market this hat and we should get other such hats and, and get to hell and back written on the front of it. So stay tuned. I don't know that I would ever do that, but that's an interesting idea. And uh, But the question I want to ask in the podcast today is, how did I choose this hat? Because uh, it sounds like a silly little thing, and it probably looks to some of you like a silly little thing, but I actually think it's uh, it reflects a, lar a larger issue. So um, what do I mean? I chose it without knowing why I chose it. I put it on without knowing why I put it on. When my father died a couple decades ago, uh, I didn't even realize that I changed how I dressed afterwards for about six months. My wife pointed out to me that I was wearing a tie, which I didn't usually do. And all of a sudden, after my father died, and I made, never made the connection until she said that, and she said, You've been wearing a tie since your father died. Oh, I didn't know that. There was some part of my mind that was operating independently 
of the part of my mind that knows what I'm doing. Let's call it implicit intelligence as opposed to explicit. If my mind just knew to start wearing a tie, perhaps in honor of my father, who used to wear a tie, um, or something like that, but, um, and then choosing to wear this hat, as I said last time, I thought, I'll probably stop wearing it if I ever figure out why I'm wearing it. I mean, I don't exactly know why I'm wearing it. I tell you, it reminds me distantly of my best friend from life, who passed away in 2003, Cindy, who I've talked about in a previous podcast, used to teach DBT with me. She was sort of nutty, quirky, used to wear finger puppets on her fingers, and suddenly they would pop out of ta up above the table when we would go have dinner together, and she would wear nutty things. So there may be a little bit of Cindy-ishness in this hat. Um, there's also just other things I just haven't figured out. But um, I think what's important about this that connects with other things I want to talk about is that there's a part of the brain, let's call it the right side of the brain, the right side of the brain versus the left side of the brain. The right side of the brain, or let's say uh, being right-minded versus left-minded, uh, but there's a ton of evidence for what I'm about to say, is that they operate as if they're like two different personalities in the same person. And we all have access to both of those personalities. The left brain personality is more sequential, logical, orderly, stays on task, operates by protocols, scripted, explicit understanding of things, etc., etc. Sort of like the world of science, of evidence-based things, logic, and so on. And it's how we often start to try to solve a problem. The right side, being right-minded, right-brain-minded, is more just sort of in the moment encountering the current moment as a particular instance, not a general category of anything, not something that you base a protocol on. It's just life itself in the moment, one moment after another after another. The right brain just encounters the moment without having all of these protocols, scripts, or reasons for doing things. And I think the right brain mind in me chose this hat the right brain mind in me chose to put on the tie. And the right brain mind in me does a lot of things that I've come to value more and more over time because it's more spontaneous. It's more oriented to the context. It's more emotional. It's more related to music. It's more related to metaphor and things like that. So there's something, and I'm gonna be, there'll be more about this in future podcasts because I think it has just huge implications for how we live and how we do therapy and how we solve problems in society and in our own lives. So that's, I just wanted to say that. Now, what does this have to do with the second topic, which is the, uh, a certain moment in the development of DBT? When Marshall Linehan decided to tackle the most difficult problem in working with other human beings, and suicide. Um, it's a huge problem. It's a wicked problem because it's uh, uh, there's so much of it, and uh, it rises and falls over time. It mostly has been rising in recent years, 
And so when she approached the problem of suicide, with her own background of having been suicidal for quite a while, and then she became very um, scholarly and went to graduate school and started to learn all about cognitive behavioral treatment, which if there's a protocol-based treatment in the world, it's cognitive behavioral treatment. It's like, first do this, then do this, then do this, and if this happens, do this, and if that happens, do that, with algorithms and logic and everything, and it's, you know, you, you're applying lots of protocols as part of it. And that's what she was doing, you know, applying um, and analyzing people's uh, sequences of behavior, having people keep track every night of what they did that day, uh, figuring out what the target of a given session was, using uh, cognitive restructuring, trying to change people's thinking as a way to change their problem behavior. And, and several other protocols, right? So that's what she was doing. She was a, a left brain machine when she was doing that. She was a left brain machine and she was bringing that to her patients who were highly suicidal and saying, okay, let's solve this problem this week, okay? Tell me how, how this happened. And she'd go sequentially through whatever happened. The left brain was just happy as a clam going through all of this stuff and figuring out, well, there's a problem, there's a problem, there's a problem. We should tackle this one first and this one second and this one third and so let me teach you a skill like instead of killing yourself how about making yourself a pot of tea very carefully and thoughtfully noticing every step and being mindful as you go and really distracting your mind from suicide on to making tea successfully okay so she's teaching these skills what are her patients doing at that point they hated that it it it, it was one of the bigger failures in treatment development, was her trying to do this, what she was passionately convinced would work. And it just wouldn't work because her patients would tell her that she didn't appreciate their suffering. She, they, wouldn't, they, they would fight her. They would have crises that demanded attention. And it just didn't go well. You know, they'd be mad at her a lot of the time. And ultimately, she came to the conclusion that it just it didn't honor their suffering. It didn't honor their history. It didn't honor the trauma in the background of some of them. Um, instead, it just sort of jumped right to solutions. The left brain was, was doing its thing. So actually, over time, she implemented a number of changes in the treatment where she stayed, she kept right at the core all of these problem-solving approaches, right? But then she, um, uh, realized she had to do something else. And she tried this and that and the other thing until she came up over time with basing the next chapter of the development of DBT in mindfulness. Because she came to think that mindfulness practice and mindfulness philosophy was the answer, the best answer the world had at the moment to suffering, human suffering. That just to be aware of the moment, just to be present in the moment, to let go of things that you're hanging on to, let go of how you think things should be, and just jump in and participate almost intuitively in life from what she called your wise mind, that, that that would be the way to go to help reduce suffering. And part of that, when you're working with another human being, is to validate them, which is to validate that what they are saying, what they're feeling, and what they're doing makes complete sense, right? So says, no wonder you feel that way. 
I can understand how you feel. Tell me more about that. And just be there with the person, not trying to push them in any particular direction, right? So now she's, so she developed mindfulness, which was a form of acceptance. You know, the book that I wrote, where is it? It's here. The um, subtitle, DBT Principles in Action, Acceptance, Change, and Dialectics. The mindfulness part, the just be there part, is the acceptance part. The change part is the left brain problem solving protocols part, right? So now you have a sort of a double action therapy where she goes back and forth and balances between being absolutely accepting and kind and compassionate and uh, see the wisdom of the person's thinking and feeling and actions and, at this, and then flip back over to solve the problem say now do you think I understand you and if the person says yeah I think you're finally getting it right then her style would be to jump over and say okay so now let's solve it how why don't we try this or why don't we try that so she would sort of get back on the same platform as the patient by using mindfulness and expand awareness and strengthen attention and then jump into solving okay now that moment when she came to realize that mindfulness was the answer to this over-protocolized left-brain approach to suicide and to a human being who is suffering. That moment that she realized that, she had to temporarily let go of all of these things that she had studied, practiced, and believed in for many years. And she had to let go of it. She had to let go of the rational way of thinking about this and just be there. She started to realize that just being with her patients, just being with her patients in the moment and being with herself in the moment had this very healing effect. It's almost like you're pushing somebody, which is hard for them, and then you heal it by just being there, all right? So that was that moment uh, and, and it really meant a lot to me when I learned DBT. And it, it synced with things I had learned in my psychoanalytic studies earlier and psychoanalytic treatment of just being there with the patient. I once had a, a supervisor whose style of interviewing patients, including really difficult patients, troubled patients, difficult to treat patients with schizophrenia and bipolar illness and antisocial and uh, borderline, all, all these difficult problems to treat. What I found interesting about his interviews compared to other people is that he, they just went very well. It almost seemed like it just, why isn't he running into all the trouble that I see other people running into? And so I would watch him closely because I, I must have watched him do mm, dozens of interviews over time because he would come to the place I was doing treatment and he would do case conferences and he would interview patients. And, um, and it went so smoothly and, I, and so after one of the meetings I, sa I said, um, what, what are your, what's going on in the back of your mind? What's guiding your way of being with the patient? Because your interviews, I like the way your interviews go. And he said, I'm trying to think this, I'm trying to let almost all of my thoughts go and just respond to the latest thing the patient says. The patient says, I had a dog 
I don't stop and think, gee, I wonder why he thought that. I wonder why he had, says he had a dog. I wonder what that means about us. I wonder what that means about his life. No, if he says, patient says, I, we have a dog, I'd say, what kind? And which is the way normal people act. Not sometimes psychotherapists miss that kind of normality, but it's kind of like, and then if a person says something else, I say something else. And I started to watch and realize that's exactly what was going on. He just stayed in touch with the patient. He just responded to the latest thing. Sometimes he would add on something a little bit surprising, but um, still, it's sort of like he was staying present while they had the conversation. And so that affected me. That affected me a lot. Um, this important thing of letting, and, and so I felt like his right brain is guiding him in the interview. His right brain of just being present, being there, and responding to the moment, whatever it was. You know, you just did, it was not easy to throw off this person because he just responded to whatever came next rather than thinking, oh, he shouldn't have said that or we shouldn't do that or maybe we should do this. So he didn't seem to be caught up in all the shoulds about the conversation. It was just like, here's how the conversation's going. So here's where I go. This sounds, as I say it to you, trivial and easy. It's actually not easy at all. And, and it connects to what I said before about the hat and about wearing a tie after my father passed away, and uh, and just sort of like trusting that your right brain is coming up with important ways of responding, even if you don't understand them. Just follow it, just go with it, just let yourself go. So I just wanted to, to make that comment. You know, it brings to mind, Mason and I not sound related at first, but there was a, there was a family therapist who was famous at the time. You may or may not know who he was. Carl Whitaker was his name. He ended up at University of Wisconsin in Madison, Wisconsin. And Whitaker would do conferences where he demonstrated family therapy. And I went to many of them. I liked to watch him interview a family on stage and then talk about it and talk with the family about it. And so in this one case, he was on stage with a, a family of four people and it was a very complicated meeting, and there was a lot of conflict in the family. There were a couple of teenagers and a couple of parents, and things were not going well in the meeting. And I'm watching, thinking, okay, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? Like, what's the book tell him to do? What's the protocol for this difficult situation? And what I saw him do was fall asleep. He's literally on the stage, and he sort of leans back in his chair, and you can practically hear him snoring. And we have an audience of about 300 people, and a family on stage, and he's leaning back in this chair, appearing to be asleep, and uh, goes on for three minutes, four minutes, something like that, and it's like everybody's wondering, uh-oh, did he just have a stroke? I mean, did, did he go to sleep? I mean, what happened? And then suddenly he sat up, and he made a comment that totally changed the interview, and everybody got centered around what he said. And then he, we talked later about what he did, I said, what did you do during that moment? He said, I did not know what to do, which in my current language, I would say my left brain didn't know what to do. I didn't have an answer for the problem. And so I went to sleep and in order to allow myself to have a dream. And when I laid back there, after a few minutes, I had sort of a dream. I don't know if it was a night dream or probably a daydream. I kind of had a dream about this family. And then I just sort of realized, oh, Here's what I want to say. 
And then I sat up and I started talking again. And everything was different. Those moments in your life, when you're up against the wall, and you're up against a difficult family problem, you're up against a, different, a difficult psychological or emotional problem, you're in a difficult problem at work or with another relationship, you want to try to use protocols, you want to try to use your left brain and think about what to do and how to find your way out of it, but sometimes you can't find your way out of it, and you need to kind of put to rest and let go of trying to solve it and just open your mind to something weird, something from outer space that might come in, not literally, well, maybe, and, um, and, and then, you know, you come up with a different way to do it. I'll give you an example. About two weeks ago, I was doing an interview, uh, which I do every Monday morning. Uh, and I think I might have mentioned this in a previous podcast, but it would have had to be last week, so I'm not, I'm not sure if I did. But um, this person was really difficult to interact with. It was a young man, and he had a severe mental illness. And uh, I'm trying to get to know him. And he's like blocking me at every turn. Everything I ask, he's insulting me about, and he's saying it's, that doesn't make sense, and blah, blah, blah. And then, then he stops talking, and he won't respond to me. And really, within 15 minutes, we had a terrible time. And I sat there, and I thought, nothing I am doing is working. I am totally stuck. There are no answers in the book for this one. I'm not sure what to do, right? So I just sort of like closed my eyes for a moment and then I said to him, I, th I didn't re I just suddenly remembered what his name was. And um, I said, did you say your name's Pete? He said, yeah, it's Pete, all right? And I said, yeah, yeah. I said, you know what's so cool about that is that my dog when I was a kid was named Pete. I mean, and Pete was basically helped me survive my childhood. When everything was shitty in my family, or I felt left out of things, or I felt like a failure, I felt like unhappy with people in my family, I could always go on a walk with Pete. And Pete would never give me shit. Pete and I would just be together, and we could go sit somewhere, we could walk somewhere. Even when I walked to school, because my school was in walking distance at that point, he'd walk with me to school and be there at the school during recess. So I said, Pete helped me survive my childhood, so I'm so glad your name is Pete. At which point, he starts opening up and talking to me. I mean, I don't know why, and I don't know why I said it, and I don't know what took me there, but you know what I'm trying to say today is, in a way, who gives a damn? I mean, you open yourself, you open up the moment to a novel thing that comes to your mind. And you know, it's like my old friend Cindy, the one who was my best friend, who I mentioned before, and who I've had the podcast about before. Um, when she and I would teach together, and I thought she was such a brilliant teacher, she would come up with things that I had no idea where they were coming from. They were like flying into her mouth and out of her mouth, like, where did that come from? Like she would sometimes, she was once giving a lecture about uh, the biological basis of emotions, and I just, I blanked out for a moment, and then I heard what she's talking about. She's talking about she said she wanted to explain that the brain was made up of several compartments. And for men and women, they're different compartments. Because for men, men have a very large compartment that has to do with sex. And when are they gonna, like, get laid? And women have a very small part compartment for that. But there's this other compartment about doing laundry. And in women, it's a huge part of the brain. 
and she goes on and on about this like I swear for like 15 or 20 minutes she doesn't stop talking and she's talking to a group of professionals that paid to come to learn how to do therapy and she's telling them about the part of the brain that's for laundry the part of the brain that's for sex and how what we have to do is we try have to expand men's capacities to do laundry and women's capacities to have sex and it's like it's so funny and somehow it was way off target and somehow it was perfect for the moment so that was like and then I would when she would talk about that style of teaching I said what do you what is that Cindy I'm trying to get better at that and she said I call it the what's the fuck strategy what's that well, that's like when you're teaching or you're talking with somebody and trying to get something across and you have suddenly have this weird idea maybe I should do such and such and it's kind of outrageous and then you think no I shouldn't do that just say to yourself what the fuck and then go ahead and say it because what the fuck I mean so what if somebody doesn't like it what if, it's like okay this happens once in a while but it's important to give way to the implicit part of your brain and I could have a lot more examples of this and it may come back over time in the podcast because I think this is an important part of being a therapist as well as being a friend and human being. So let me tell you what happens when I supervise therapists. I'll, a lot of times what happens is that there, I can, because I know DBT quite well and I see them trying to do DBT and I'm watching them in a videotaped interview seeing their client trying to do DBT. Um, I know where they're coming from. I can see the strategies they're using. I can see where they're going. I can see how they formulate the problem. Uh, I say, okay, they're on target. They're on target. They're on target. They're doing it. They're doing it. Sort of like when you teach somebody to play tennis or play golf or play baseball or something. It's like, yeah, they got it. Okay, that they know how to throw the ball. They know how to hit the ball, etc. All right. So I'm seeing that, but then I see them practicing validation. Now validation is the ultimate strategy of acceptance in conveying acceptance to another human being. But when you can feel like somebody is implementing the protocol of validation, it just doesn't work as well. The, the client can feel it. The client feels like, what are you doing? Trying to be a therapist? Because you say, uh-huh, yeah, I know how you feel. Well, of course you must have felt this. And, and, and they hear that and they think, this person is actually not really here with me this person is being a validation machine. This person is implementing validation as a strategy. And when you implement validation as a protocolized strategy, which is the way it's taught at first in DBT, it doesn't work, it's not accepting. It's because you're not there. You wanna have that capacity, like people who teach mindfulness that say that what you wanna have come across to the other person when you inter interact with them is this almost as if you're saying with your very presence, oh, darling, I am here for you. Darling, I am right here. You need look no further. I'm just here and I'm gonna be here with you. And that way of being where you're just there and then if they go to the right, you go to the right. If they go to the left, you go to the left. If they tell you about this, you go there. If you, you know, you might challenge them about some things, but fundamentally at the ground level in your core, you're just present with the person, okay? And so that's the idea of the ba one of the bases of being a really, really good therapist. Uh, and it informed that type of conversation that my supervisor would do that I was talking to you about when he would interview people. Just, just sort of there and just sort of respond to what they said. 
you know, rather than try to do stuff, people can feel it when you're making an effort to be a good therapist, when you're making an effort to be a good friend and say the right things. I must say, you know, it's a little bit like when um, our kids were growing up, we had two, two boys, and when they were kids, they would have friends come over. And, and there were a couple of their friends that would come and, and say, uh, you know, we'd like give that offer, offer something to eat or something. And some of the friends would say, thank you, uh, Mr. Swenson. Thank you, Meredith. Thank you, so-and-so. That's so nice of you. And we would hear, and it sounded good on paper, what they were saying, but it just made you think, Jesus, who taught them to say that? And sort of like, and it didn't feel like they were just being. And whereas we knew other friends of theirs that would come and just, you know, act like none of that stuff. It wasn't, nothing was put on. And we could tell the difference. And of course, that's just different styles and it's not so terrible. But I'm telling you, when you want to be a therapist, and this podcast sometimes goes out to some therapists as well as everyone else. And being a good therapist is being able to be there with just the patient and your right brain and just responding and just being spontaneous. In DBT, uh, just to drill down in one skill, there's one skill called to participate. And to participate just means that you are letting go of all of these protocols. You're letting go of what should be. You're letting go of your inhibitions and you are just being there in the moment, whether you are dancing, you're singing, you're having a conversation, you're taking a walk, you're doing exercise, you're all in. You're 100% in, as athletes would say, since I'm in the middle of watching the NBA playoffs every night practically. Um, players say at the end, if they played really well, they say, well, I was leaving it all on the floor. And sort of that, that comment of I was participating, I was all in, I was engaged. So that's what you're looking to do in those moments. But when we get caught up in scriptedness, it, it sometimes uh, doesn't work. And, you know, so when I say it's not just about being therapists, but being good friends. To be a good friend, I'll give you, just tell you where, where this comes from. Uh, one, one example of many that this comes from. I, I was talking with a woman earlier today who I've known for about four years, I think. I tried to help her when her son was uh, suicidal and he was in his early 20s and he wouldn't leave the house and he wouldn't leave the room. Charming, interesting, uh, talented kid and uh, he had really gone downhill and he wasn't doing anything and uh, she couldn't get him to do anything. She couldn't get him interested in anything and she was worried because he would talk a lot about suicide. Uh, but then once, finally, he did it. In fact, she left me, she called me once and she got me on the phone and she said, he did it, he finally did it. And it was just devastating. So that's two years ago. So today she was talking to me about what the last two years have been like, sort of getting in the rear view mirror now. Like, how did I get through this? How did I not just jump into the grave with him? Which is what I felt like. How have I managed this? And so, I said, how have you? What have you done? She said, well, the first year was different than the second year. And the first year, I just was always just could, I was just beside myself. I just couldn't believe it. I just kept going back over and over and over. And I was looking for myself to blame. 
I was thinking about why I didn't do this and why I didn't do that or why didn't I try this and why didn't I try that and I have to tell you this is somebody who tried everything she could think of and I and it, that's why she came to talk to me to think of more things but it ultimately wasn't enough and so she said the way I got through the first year I was uh, the thing first thing that comes to mind is that I would go walking every morning with my friend down the street and we would do a five mile walk and every day at the end of the day as evening came we would do a five mile walk every day and she was there for me every day and she never stopped and I knew that I had this walk and during this walk what took place between her and this friend who really knew how to be a good friend which was the friend just walked with her the friend didn't push her about anything the friend didn't give her perspective on things the friend just would listen to her if she wanted to talk and if they did a whole five mile walk and never talked that was fine um, there was something about her friend because the, the value of her friend was not the brilliance of her friend or what she thought or whether she deeply understood it was that her friend was present with her just through the whole thing there's something about someone being present with you which is just so healing. I think all of us know it at heart, but we forget it over and over again. And so being a good friend in that case, because she said there were a lot of people that are good friends of hers that would try hard to be a good friend. But what do you say to somebody who just lost their beloved son? Like, how do you be a good friend? What do you say? And she said she could feel their anxiety. She could feel them trying to say the right thing and to avoid saying the wrong thing. And all of that meant that even though they were really nice and they were really trying to be good friends, it actually wasn't quite what she needed at that point. She just needed somebody who was just gonna be there and not try to do stuff and just respond to the moment. So if she wanted to talk about her son or her feelings, that she could. If she didn't want to, that was fine too. That's part of being a really good friend. It's part of being a parent, it's part of being a teacher, it's part of being a tutor, it's part of being a coach. It's the part that isn't written about as well in books. It's that stuff that happens in between teaching somebody what to do. It's just being there, okay? So that was the, the big point of today so far is the value of the in the moment presence, the value of implicit knowledge, of, of just not knowing why you're doing what you're doing, but you're doing it. Uh, and it's not a terrible thing to do, even if it seems like a ridiculous thing to do, maybe it's what you need to do. Um, and it's part of solving life's problems. It's part of navigating through adversity. It's just to keep returning over and over again to these moments of, no one else knows what I should do, I should just do this. And then do it. If it means you're gonna go down at midnight and jump in a lake in all of your clothes and swim around, you know, fucking do it. I mean, just go do it, unless it's gonna drown you. And even then, I don't know if that's the right thing or wrong thing to do, but it's kind of like, trust yourself that you can make some good decisions without having to explain to yourself why you did it exactly. It might just be who you are and what you needed to do. Now, what does anything this, this have to do with this catastrophe in Texas? I think the name of the town is Uvalde, Texas, or Uvalde, Texas. I don't know, it's a very small town, a few hundred people. And uh, 19 children were killed by this one 18-year-old that came in with a, uh, an assault-style weapon and uh, 
went in one classroom and just it's a, just an unbearable thought um, and did this and then ended up dying and it and what makes it even worse and what makes it part of a national fabric of insanity is that there have been hundreds of mass killings in the last couple years hundreds literally there was the other school shooting. There have been many school shootings, but the one nearer to where I live, and uh, it's just down south of here in Connecticut, Sandy Hook School, was very similar to this. So what do you do? I've been reading people's responses to it. I've been reading parents' responses, school administrators, police, commentators on television, uh, newspaper uh, journalists, and thinking about it and just realizing that nearly everybody tries to jump in with their left brain rather quickly. Well, it's because the police wouldn't allow parents in it. So the police didn't follow the shooter into the school quickly enough. Oh, it's that we have too many guns everywhere. Uh, it's that the person's mentally ill. It's that the school didn't have, the school had too many unlocked doors. It's that the school didn't have teachers that are armed with weapons. It's, you know, there've been like, 50 reasons why this happened, and it's only a couple days ago. And I think that is the left brain's effort to come up with a solution way too fast. And when you try to come up with solutions way too fast, before you know what you're talking about, and before you know what it's like, and before you sort of have that moment to just take it all in, you come up with very oversimplified answers. And they're, they're appealing because everybody's looking for an answer. Everybody wants an answer. And so you jump on an answer and say, ah, here's why. This person did it. This person's to blame. This group's to blame. This, is, this rule in society is to blame. And, and then you grab onto that. And then you demonize anyone who's on the other side. And you get stuck in a dialectical problem in that you believe one thing that's kind of oversimplified and black and white and rigid, and someone else believes the opposite. And neither of you is necessarily right. You probably each have a piece of the truth. And in these situations that you might call our wicked problems, where it's a societal problem that's way bigger than it looks like at first. It's way bigger than Uvalde, Texas. It's way bigger than Sandy Hook. It is, it's something very large about society that allows our country to have uh, unbelievably more guns than any other uh, reasonably wealthy civilized country. Way more, if you look at the charts. It's sort of like ridiculous uh, per, per capita. And way more mass shootings than almost any other country, and certainly any wealthy country. And so you think, wow, there is a wicked problem here. What is this problem? And then you have in, uh, in the legislature, people fighting against even talking about whether, whether there's too many guns or too many guns of an assault rifle nature or things like that. You, you know the story. Everybody has been exposed to this. We've been practically drowned in this for years uh, over and over again. So there's this very wicked problem. And what I want to suggest is not the overall answer to this though I am interested in a future podcast, in taking it apart uh, in a way uh, that, that's possible to analyze and deconstruct the problem and see about what the solutions might be. But what I just want to say now, as the first step to this, is what I've been talking about in this podcast, 
Just take it in. Let yourself experience it. You'll probably cry, but that's probably deserved. Imagine being one of those 19 children. We all were in classrooms as a child. Imagine being one of those children. And even though you've had drills of what to do if a shooter comes in the school, which by the way, this school had had, this school had actually put more effort than most into getting ready for such an incident. And the guy still just walked in and unlocked the door and did this. And so imagine being one of those children and it's the last moments of your life and your friend's life. Imagine, let yourself imagine being the parent of one of these children. I mean, and how that would affect you. It's just heartbreaking beyond description. Imagine being one of the teachers, and either one of the two teachers that died or one of the other teachers who've been their colleagues, uh, and all the effort that's gone into being a teacher. Imagine being the police that are supposed to stop this, but they themselves are terrified of walking into the building when this man is shooting and, and, and being afraid that they're going to be killed or something like that when in fact it's their job. Imagine the excruciating dilemma of being a policeman in this situation and you're supposed to stop it. You're supposed to do something about it and you're supposed to put your life in between the shooter and the children and, and then you hesitate to do that and then the parents attack you for that. You know? Imagine being anybody directly associated with this situation. Imagine, let yourself imagine that you're the shooter. That's probably the last thing most of us stop and think, but you know what? We're all contributors, in my opinion, because we're all interdependent. We all build this society together, and we have built so many shooters. We have built so many people who have been willing to go beyond all morals and all conscience and kill people thinking they're doing what they have to do or they're doing the right thing, and especially by killing children. It's like, this 18-year-old, tried to imagine being him, what would motivate me as him to do such a thing? I would have to be incredibly angry, incredibly despairing about my life and what has happened to me, resentful about what happened to me perhaps in school or by somebody or by society in general, not helping me out or my family or my parents or something. I don't know what it was, but it takes a lot of suffering to cause somebody to go cause so much suffering. So I think before we jump to solutions and figuring out who's the good guys and who's the bad guys, which is sort of an American thing to do, that you just take it in and let yourself experience it without applying protocol, without a systematic analysis, without pointing fingers and blaming. Just take it in for a while. Just take it in for a while. And then start to let yourself think. But first, just absorb what happened. Just be present. Just be here. Okay? All right. I'm going to follow my own recommendation about what I said with the what the fuck strategy earlier because I feel like singing you the first two lines of a song kind of related to this, not directly related to this, and I have no wisdom in doing this. I don't have the music prepared or anything. And maybe you know this song. I just It just came to my mind. And I've been thinking about it recently, about some things, especially applicable to, to hell and back. Because the first line of the song is getting into hell. 
and the second line of the song is Giving Back from Hell. So to close today's podcast, I just want to sing you two lines to the song called A Cakewalk Into Town. I was feeling so bad one day I had my face in a permanent frown. Now I'm feeling so much better I could cakewalk into town. I'll see you next time. Bye from Charlie.